1984, Bonnie Tyler was holding out for a hero. She sings, where, where have all the good men gone? Where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? You know, she, dreams, she sings about dreaming of what she needs, and then she tells us what she needs. She needs a hero. She's holding out for one who's strong and fast and sure and larger than life. Many of us need a hero from time to time. And we'd like to have somebody come and fight our battles for us. Our movies are full of heroes that do that. They fight for humanity. And we have a whole comic book industry built on that. Somebody, some superhero fighting for us. What I find interesting is in those comic books, there are these moments where the crises of history actually come back into the comic books. Captain America. He was formed in the context of World War II. So even in these places, these, these times of hopelessness, you can tell people are longing for someone, someone larger than life, who's strong and fast and sure, who can fight the rising odds. We want a hero. We want somebody to fight for us, to rescue us from that hopeless situation that we're in, to do what we can't seem to do for ourselves. And the idea of somebody fighting for you Somebody being a representative that fights for you. That's an ancient idea. We saw it back in the Old Testament. The story of David and Goliath, where David or where Goliath goes out into the Valley of Elah, and he is acting as a representative of the Philistine army. You remember his offer. He said, basically, Israel should choose their own hero to come out to the valley to fight him, and the winner would, would win the benefits of that victory for their respective army. So if Goliath won, the Philistine army would benefit from his victory. And the person who lost, their, their opposing army, they would, they would experience the misfortune of the consequences of their failure. So both of those are vice versa. If the Israelite hero won, the same would be true. And that's not the only time an arrangement like that was made. This is actually something that recurs in ancient history. Homer gave the same scenario in his Iliad with Hector and Ajax. They had the same situation. Both of them are heroes fighting for their respective armies. And we know in the story of David and Goliath, David steps forward. But David, he doesn't say he's the hero. David says that the Lord is the hero, that he's kind of an instrument of the Lord, though he is the representative that God uses to rescue his people. So the, the Bible describes people as being representatives, people standing in for other people, the one standing in for the many. And it's not just in David and Goliath. You see that where people act, they do something, and their act impacts the rest of the nation. See that with Achan. Achan is one person who takes things that he's not supposed to from Jericho. And his one act, it impacts the nation as a whole. Saw the, the exact opposite of that earlier with Phineas. Phineas is, is Aaron's son. His one act, it's a righteous act, stops the punishment that Israel's experiencing. So this idea of people representing, one representing the many, is throughout the Bible. In our own passage, what we're going to see is Adam... He acts, the way that he acts at the beginning, his one act at the beginning, I should say, impacts all of humanity. Adam 
is described as the son of God. Luke 3.38 makes that explicit. But Genesis 5 actually does the same. Later, God adopted Israel to be their son, his son. And, and he also tells Israel that they're going to be a kingdom of priests, representatives of humanity. And then a little bit later than that, you have God choosing David to be Israel's king. And his sons were called the sons of God. Representatives, again, of the people of Israel. So as a king lived, so went the nation, for good or for bad. Israel benefited from the kings like, from kings like Hezekiah or Josiah. But they experienced great misfortune because of kings like Manasseh and Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. Their acts brought about the exile. So there's this idea of representation throughout the Bible. God promised one day that his servant would be a representative for the people. That Israel's hero would be this servant who sacrifices his life gives his life as a sacrifice in Isaiah 53, where this righteous one makes the many righteous. Now, we're familiar with representation in our country today. I, I prayed for people that are representing us in our, in our nation, in our state. Our government's a democratic republic. It, it is a situation where we vote for people who represent us. And remember, the, the major concern at the beginning of our nation, at the birth of our nation, was for representation. You might remember the catchphrase, no taxation without representation. You could say with salvation, in a similar way, there is no salvation without representation. Only our representative that saves us, he's not representing our desires. He's actually saving us from them. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So what Paul's talking about this morning is about representatives. Two, in fact. Adam... And Jesus, and he's going to help us understand the significance of their representation, what they've done, how they've represented us, and what's resulted from that. Adam was our first representative, but he's not a hero. He's actually us. He represents us perfectly. Jesus is our final representative. He is our hero. He's the hero we need. And he's the hero of everyone who trusts in him. So in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, on page 886, Paul's going to teach us about our representatives. He teaches us about the effects of our first representative, about the differences between our representatives, and about the solution by our final representative. So the effects of our first representative, the differences between the two, and the solution by our final representative. So you could turn to Matthew, or sorry, to Romans 5, page 886 in the Pew Bible. And we're going to look at the first three verses, 12 through 14, where we see the effects of our first representative. So after, after stressing the joyful, confident hope we have in the last section... You have this hope by faith in Jesus. Paul then, he goes into a fuller explanation of of how Jesus is able to so completely save us. He's explained already in chapter 3 that justification by faith is how we're saved. He explained that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. 
that establishes a righteous status for us that we did not deserve, that we could not earn. And then he also explains how Jesus redeems us. He frees us from the power of sin. But now he's going to go further into why that's necessary. Why did that have to be? And how is it that Jesus has provided the solution? And so he begins with the word therefore in verse 12. He's still explaining the salvation that he's been talking about. But he has this new development he wants to explain, and that's that Jesus is a representative just like Adam was. Adam's the, the first human, and Adam takes on this role, but his main subject is Jesus. He's making a comparison between Adam and Jesus, but in order to do that, he has to explain some things about Adam first. And so he, he breaks off from his comparison And he says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So before he can make the comparison, he he wants to first just state what the one man, the first one, did. Now, many Jewish people in Paul's day, they had an idea for how sin entered the world. Many of them blamed Satan. Some of them blamed Eve. Some of them thought Adam was just kind of an example. You know, he messed up, and now we do the same thing in our lives. Paul is saying something different. Paul doesn't point to Satan, and Paul does not blame Eve. And he's very clear. Everyone does sin, and he's very clear that we're all responsible for our sin. But what he's saying here about Adam's role, it, there's something more to it. Sin, he says, entered the world of humanity through one man. Satan was sinful prior to Adam. But The point of entry for humanity with sin is Adam, not Satan. In Genesis 2 and verses 16 and 17, it it gives us this command. God gave Adam one command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gave a warning. When you do that, you will die. So Paul's explaining here that death, entered the world, the world of humanity, through Adam's sin. That's how death came into our world, and uh, the world of humanity. And he says then that death spread to all men. That's what Genesis 5 clearly says. I mean, Genesis 5 reads like a dirge, funeral dirge. It repeats after every one of, of Adam's descendants, and they died, everyone but Enoch, God rescued. Over and over again, and he died. So Paul then says, all men died because all sinned. Those words have been the the subject of much discussion. What is Paul saying when he says, because all sinned? Some people talk about the tense of the word sinned, the verb there. But Paul said almost the identical thing in Romans 3.23. And there he was just summing up all of humanity's sin that, he's been ta- that he had been talking about in chapters 1 and 2. So it could be that Paul's just saying, Adam died for his sin, everyone else experiences the same thing. But he's already kind of pointed in, a, in another direction with that, that, that there's something more significant about Adam's sin. He brought sin and death into the world. And so... Basically, that that first statement is setting up the rest of what he's going to say here. He's just making a general statement, and he's going to go on to explain it. And as he does, he explains that, again, Adam's done something more than just start a pattern. 
for humanity. He's not just a bad example. His sin has affected us. It's affected the rest of humanity. And so he begins to explain that in verses 13 and 14. And when you read verse 13, if you've been following in Romans, you might think it sounds like a contradiction. Like Paul's saying something different than he said. What he's clearly already said is that Jewish people and Gentiles, all of them are without excuse. They're all guilty of sin. He's established that already. So he's not saying that some sins didn't really count. You could read verse 13 and it sounds like, well, he's saying some sins didn't count. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I mean, and and if you just read Genesis, you know that's true. When you get to chapter 6, God sends a flood to address the sin of the people. Sin counted. He's not saying that. But he's trying to explain how God did not publicly address sin. He did not tell people his expectations for sin like he did with Adam until he gave the law. There's this period of time where that wasn't clear. And again, if you're following along in Romans, you understand why Paul brings up the law here. What he's been doing, and he's a Jewish man who recognizes that God has revealed what the truth about Jesus through the Old Covenant, through the Old Covenant revelation. So he's going to interact with the law because it's relevant to explaining who Jesus is and what's happened to Jesus. And he also knows that the Jewish person reading this and the people he's been interacting with, they held the law as as very, very important. Those covenant stipulations, they were really, really important. So he, he brings it up here. And what he's saying is that even though God did punish the pre-flood world, he he did punish Sodom and Gomorrah, what he had not done was give a clear explanation of what he commanded. He did that with Adam, but he didn't do it again until the law of Moses. And what he's already told us is that there is a difference between sin and transgression. It's one thing to to do the wrong thing. It's another thing to be told to do that and then to do it anyways. So when the law came... It brought a higher severity to the crime. It brought a greater severity to sin. So from the time of Adam to Moses, people were sinners. They, they clearly demonstrate that they're sinners because they're part of this world where death happens. Death is condemnation for being sinners. Nobody could escape that. Nobody could rebel against sin's reign. That's why he refers to, he personifies sin. He makes it like a ruler. And he's saying nobody could rebel against it. Nobody could escape the power of death. Didn't matter that God's law wasn't there. They were still sinners. They still died. So what Adam did affected everyone. It's not that everybody just sins like Adam and they experience the same result. God told Adam something. Don't do this, and if you do this, here's the consequence, death. He didn't tell anybody else that. And yet, that's what everybody experiences. The punishment that God gave to Adam. Death. So, Adam's sin brought everyone into this realm of sin and death. That's not true of any of our sin. We don't do that. When we sin, we don't usher people into a new realm. Adam is a representative. And and what you see in the Bible, throughout the Bible, are that there's these things that correspond to Jesus. So 
There are institutions like sacrifice or the priesthood, and they're pointing forward to Jesus. There are events like the Exodus that are pointing forward to Jesus, and there are people and roles that point forward to Jesus. God intended them to be a pattern that tells us something about Jesus. Adam is one of those people who, he says, is a type of the one who was to come. He's a figure. He's a person who corresponds to Jesus. And the question is how? He corresponds to Jesus because he's a representative of humans. He's somebody who stands in the place, one for the many, just as Jesus did. So what Adam did impacted everybody connected to him. In fact, in Hebrew, the word Adam could also be translated humanity. Adam's name is where we get the Hebrew word for humanity. From the very beginning, Adam's given this name that tells us he's the representative of humanity. What he does impacts the rest of us. Now, that's something that, that can be pretty offensive to people. You, know, you might object to that because you, you say, well, why should Adam get to be my representative? No, why should he get to mess up my life? I didn't vote for him. I didn't, I didn't vote for him to be my representative. I think Ken, Tim Keller, he, he answers this objection really well. He says, first, no one could choose a representative for you as well as God could. You must not think we could have made a more intelligent selection than God. And second, God did not simply choose Adam. He created Adam to be our representative. He was perfectly created and designed to act exactly like you personally, as an individual, would have acted in the same situation. You cannot say, I would have done a better job, because that would be to claim that you could have been a better representative than God created or chosen a better representative than God chose. Now, there is no question that we are not in the same situation as Adam. Adam entered the world in perfect fellowship with God. He had perfect communion with God, the one who was holy. He was created in God's image to reflect that holiness. He was, the, he was in a perfect situation to do his job, to do what God had created him to do. None of us are born into that situation. We're all born into a situation where we're separated from God. Where we don't function as the reflections of his holiness that we're supposed to. So Adam changed our lives forever. We're born into a world where sin and death reign. That was not Adam's situation. And again, people may be upset about that and say, that's unfair. But understand what the Bible's teaching about that. Paul has already been very clear. The way he describes our situation is not an unfortunate situation that we're disconnected from. We deserve the situation we're in, is what he, said, what he said. And even if that's hard for us to understand, I just suggest Paul's telling us God's perspective on this. And he's explaining that God gave us somebody who truly represented us. That his actions, or his act, was our act. And you could say, well, I didn't do it. But Paul is saying that he truly represented us in what we did in a real way, in a mysterious way, we did with Adam. That's what Paul's teaching here. 
And, and I admit it's mysterious, but his transgression is our transgression because of his role as representative. He is our exact representation. So that being the case, there are some very big differences between Adam and Jesus. Adam's our first representative. Jesus is our final one. And so Paul's going to go on in verse, verses 15 through 17 to address those differences. So in these three verses, Paul goes on to teach about the differences between our representatives. So saying that Adam is a pattern that Jesus is going to, to fulfill, really, is not to say that Adam and Jesus do the same things. They're not identical in the way that they act. There are these major differences. Now, one of the things I've as you're going through passages like this, there are some different words that Paul chooses. And sometimes Paul chooses words based on sounds. Uh, not just on sounds, but he's trying to, to really emphasize the similarities and to contrast these differences. And so some of the words he chooses, as we're going to look at, are in some way, he's showing similarities by the way that they sound. So the words, uh, the free gift that he mentions in verse 15, and the, the trespass, and the word translated free gift in verse 16, that's actually a different word, and the words judgment, condemnation, and justification, they all end in a similar way. Here's, here's the words in Greek. Paraptoma, charisma, dorema, krima, katakrima, and dikaioma. So ma, 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 every time. This is the two. The two are doing something similar, and yet very, very different. So Paul is, is, begins here with this trespass. And he, he says that we all experience a connection with Adam, and we experience this trespass, but it is not equal with the free gift that we experience by connection to Jesus. In verse 15, he says that he refers to this group called the many. The many is affected by each representative. He doesn't say who belongs to that group. He doesn't say who the many are. He's going to clear that up for us. But I do think at this point we should listen to who are the people that he's calling the many. Who are the people that he's saying are affected by Adam? Who are the people he's saying are affected by Jesus? So he begins by saying this multitude, the many, died through one man's trespass. He's already told us we're all affected by that. So the many in that case is all of humanity. But then there's another group, another multitude, the many, and they've experienced the benefit of God's grace in the form of this gift that was given by of his grace. And so Paul's really defining in that second part, he's defining this word free gift. God has given us something, to, God has given the many something that they did not deserve. It's grace. He, he gave them something they could not earn. They could not provide for themselves. And he's given it to them by what one man has done, Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying and what he's emphasizing here is that what Jesus has done, the grace that he has brought about is greater than what Adam's done. The grace of Jesus abounded for the many. Now, Again, think through who is affected by God's grace. Before Paul explains who it is, he, he shows another difference. He says that God is like our judge. And the ruling that he gives because of the one man's trespass, that ruling was a verdict of condemn. 
But the gift that God provided, because of many trespasses, resulted in a verdict of righteousness. So he's comparing and contrasting these two. There's a judgment, a ruling that's necessary. God has to give it. It's what flows out of this one act of, of this one trespass. But the gift is not required by God to give. He gives it freely. He doesn't have to give it. And yet he gives it. And then the verdict of condemnation, that is the polar opposite of the verdict of righteous. So what Jesus has done is not the same as what Adam has done. In fact, it's in many ways the opposite of what Adam's done. And then in verse 17, he, he looks at the results more closely. He says that this one man's trespass caused death to reign through his representative role. But when he compares it, he, he doesn't do an exact opposite here. He doesn't say that life reigns through Jesus' act. He tells us actually who is the one who benefits, who is the one who reigns. He says that the many here are those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness who reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So he's saying that this is who the many are. Those who receive the gift, those who receive the grace. I know what our tendency is when you hear the word receive. What we do, what we've been told, is we make receive an active thing. So, how many times have you heard someone say that salvation is a gift, but you have to receive it? And so what we do when we portray it that way is to make reception, receiving, an active thing. That's not what Paul's doing here. That's not his emphasis. He's not emphasizing that we have to, to do something to take hold of this gift. He's talking about how we have received it. The point of the word receive here is not to talk about our cooperation with God. Because what is it we've received? He says it's righteousness. The emphasis of what Paul's talking about is that we have received righteousness. And we have absolutely in no way cooperated with God in receiving that righteousness. We've done nothing to, to be righteous. God has done everything. We have merely received it. It was a gift that we did not deserve. So that's what Paul's emphasizing here. So don't lose that because what you can do is you can introduce yourself into this. You can, you can say, I did something here. That's not what he's saying with receive. But he is saying who the many are. The many are not just everyone. It's only those who have experienced the benefits of this grace. Benefits, again, that we, we didn't do anything to provide for ourselves. We did nothing. Our faith does not contribute to our righteousness in any way, shape, or form. So notice Paul doesn't even mention faith. That's not his point. His point is not our response. He's telling us who benefits from Jesus Christ's representation. It's those to whom the gift is given. Jesus is not the representative of the same many here. He's, he, his group, his many, are defined by those who actually benefit from his act of grace. And, and what he says here, the, the difference that he, he makes, the comparison he's making, or the contrast is, not just that death reigned and now life reigns, look at who reigns. The person who reigns are those who have experienced this gift. We reign. We reign in life 
but we get to reign through not our own, not our own abilities or, or what we've done, but it's through the one man, Jesus Christ, the one who died and lives for us. So what Jesus has done, what Paul's saying is Jesus has done something different than Adam. Both of them are our representatives. But Jesus' act is greater. So his work doesn't just negate Adam's work. His, his work doesn't just bring us back to zero. He doesn't just bring us back to the garden. He brings us past the garden. What Jesus has done is greater than what Adam did. And so what Jesus does is he brings us to the point of fulfillment. God created Adam and Eve to rule over creation. But they did not rule as they were intended. And because Adam failed to rule in that way, who ruled in their stead? Sin. Death. What Jesus does in his salvation is he brings us to the fulfillment of what we were created for so that we now rule. We now reign with him. It is beyond what Adam and Eve, what what humanity had before. It's greater than that. So the difference between our representatives is, is the greatness of Jesus. He's a greater representative. He doesn't just replace Adam. He supersedes him. He overwhelms him. He he brings consequences that more than match, more than equal what Adam has done. And this is another one of those places in the Bible where you can see that God God wasn't caught off guard by our sin. Sometimes we think of things that way. Like, well, you know, God did this and then, well, we sinned and we messed everything up. It's true that we did sin in Adam and messed everything up. But God was not caught off guard by that. Jesus was necessary from the beginning. There was no other way. You guys might have seen uh, the movie Avengers Infinity War. You might have seen the scene where Doctor Strange is sitting there calculating all the different possible ways in order to defeat this amazing villain Thanos. Or Thanos, I don't know what it is. I say Thanos because of Greek, but it, is it Thanos? Anyways, this, uh, this villain is larger than life. And, and it says that he calculates 14,605,000 possible ways to defeat him. And he only finds one that actually works. All these different possibilities. This is the only way we can defeat him. Well, the fact of the matter is, is, is God is greater than Dr. Strange. Right? We can accept that. He understands the implications of creating humans from the start. He doesn't even have to factor in all the possible ways that this could go. Because he designed us. And in his design, what's true is, evidently, sin was a necessary part of that. I don't pretend to understand it, but what I do know is God makes no mistakes, that God is wiser than any of us could possibly be, and God has created a world that there are no, there, he didn't do anything wrong in making it this way. And so what he has done in creating Adam, understand what he did in creating Adam. He made Adam, designed Adam, and put him in a situation from the, from the start where he could accurately truly, perfectly represent us. And that it wasn't fair, it wasn't unfair in any way. That what Adam has done is a part of God's plan. That the only way for us to be God intended us to be was through Jesus. And from the beginning, Adam was a pattern that pointed forward to the one who would bring fulfillment. So, do not picture things as though God had made a mistake or that God was you know, shuffling around to try to figure out what to do when Adam sinned. 
He doesn't want us to sin. But evidently, the only way for us to be what we were supposed to be was through Jesus after we did sin. The solution, again, it goes beyond anything that Adam experienced in the beginning. We experience this greater solution through God's plan here. So Paul goes on to zero in on the solution in the last four verses. In Romans 8 or 5, 18 through 21, he teaches us about the solution that our final representative has brought about. And he started in, in verse 12, he started with this comparison. He says, just as, but he doesn't actually pick it up until verse 18. He doesn't actually say, just as Adam, so Jesus. He now picks that up in verse 18. He says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, what's the comparison between those two? Because there's differences there. He's still making some contrast, but the comparison, what's repeated, is all men. And maybe you've heard all means all, and that's all all means. Well, unless you're willing to say that Paul contradicts Jesus, and actually himself in other cases, then you're going to have to you're going to have to think a little differently about the word all here. Because Jesus clearly says in Matthew 25 that not every human is going to experience the verdict of righteous. And Paul says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. He says that when Christ returns, God will punish all who do not know him and have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So what Jesus has done does not lead to justification and life for all men in the sense of every single person. Jesus says otherwise, Paul says otherwise. So why? Why say all men here? Why say all men in a letter in which Paul's been arguing that salvation is found in Jesus for all men, both Jewish people and Gentiles? Paul's being inclusive here. Not being universal. He's bringing in this language of all because he's saying this is for all kinds of people, both Jewish people and Gentiles. So this one trespass resulted in a verdict of condemned for all people, for Jewish and Gentile people. And in that situation, it really is every person. Paul taught that in chapters one through three. All are under the power of sin. Adam isn't just a representative for Gentiles. He's a representative for Gentiles and Jewish people and Old Covenant members. In the same way, Jesus is the solution for all people, not just Jewish people, but Gentiles. Now, he has not brought that about in the lives of every single individual. So he does not mean all in that same sense. He uses this phrase here, act of righteousness. And he's translating, our, our translations are, are translating one Greek word that back in verse 16 was translated differently. It's translated justification. And the reason why they don't translate it the same here is because of the parallel. The parallel is with Adam's act. And so he's talking about Jesus' act. But I, I, don't think, I don't think act of righteousness is quite as clear as what Paul's getting at here. This isn't just a reference to any righteous act Jesus has done. This is a reference to the act Jesus did in bringing about justification. So I think you could translate it, Jesus' justifying act, his work of justification. And his one act that makes people righteous it resulted in that verdict of righteous. His act of justification 
results in this righteous status that then leads to life for all people. Not just Jewish people, not just the old covenant members, but for all people, both Jewish and Gentile people. And so in verse 19, he continues, only he, he moves past this terminology of all people, and he goes back to the term, the many. And he again compares Adam with Jesus. He says, on the one hand, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam's disobedience resulted in the many being in a state of sin. That's what he's saying. By disobeying in the garden, Adam caused all humanity to be in a state of separation from God, in a state of sin. So his representation caused a sinful state. In the same way, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus' act of obedience, when he gave his life in exchange for ours, that will result in the many being in a state of righteousness. This is what theologians refer to as Christ's passive obedience. It's a reference to the one obedient act Jesus did on the cross when he gave up his life. That one act of obedience is the counter to Adam's one act of disobedience. One act of obedience is an act that overwhelms Adam's disobedience. And and at this point, Paul, again, he's talking about the many. He sounds even more like Isaiah. I think that's where he gets the terminology of the many. I think that's why Jesus uses the many in Matthew 20, 28. In, In Isaiah 53, 11, Isaiah talks about this righteous servant. I mentioned it this morning. I read it this morning. This righteous servant who's going to make the many righteous. The specific group that are made righteous. And what Paul does here, he he doesn't quite quote it because he's saying something a little bit more specific in using this word making. I, I said already with Adam, this making involves causing a state of existence to happen. And so by faith in Jesus, we've entered into a state of righteousness. We've already entered into it by being justified. We're in a state of righteousness. But you could also say that we're in the process of being made righteous. We're being sanctified. And you could also say that we one day will be perfectly righteous, will be glorified. So Paul uses the future tense here, and I think that's what he's getting at. That that what we've entered into, we've begun to enter into this. We have justification. We're being sanctified, and we're going to be glorified. But what is clear is that, on the one hand, every single human is a sinner. Through Adam's representation, we're all born into this sinful state, without exception. But it's equally clear that Jesus' representation does not involve every single human being in a state of righteousness. So again, we ask the question, who is the many? How do you see who the many are? The way we see who the many are, are in those who believe. That's where we see it. The people who experience the benefits of what Christ has done are those who believe in him. Now, Paul, in all this talk of all men, again, Paul in his context, he kind of brings up the elephant in the room for him and for the Jewish people in his audience. He's, again, founding all this on on not only, but especially on what the Old Covenant revelation says. And yet, he doesn't give any role 
to the old covenant in our salvation. Not a single bit. And so the question is, well, what about the law? You, know, you went from Adam to Jesus. You skipped a really big part of the Bible. Well, what about the law? Why doesn't Paul give a role to these covenant stipulations that God gave to Moses? He explains in verse 20. That wasn't the role that the law had. It had no power to save. It, it wasn't even in place from the beginning. It came at a certain time. He's already said that in verse 14. There was a period before Moses where there was no law. So he says here that the law came in. That's a fairly neutral way to translate that word. That word's usually used in cases where there's a negative idea behind it. People slip in. That's the idea usually conveyed. Now, he's not saying the law slipped in as though God didn't intend it. But he is saying that the law didn't have the primary role. You could translate the verb, if we're going to be really literal with the, the formation of the word, it'd say that the law entered beside. So it wasn't in the spotlight. That's Paul's point. When the law came on the scene, it just kind of stood onto the side of the scene. It wasn't the main thing. It had a side role, a parenthetical role. So the role it played with our sin and salvation, Paul's already explained, was actually to increase our trespass. That's the role the law played. Yes, it taught us about sin, it taught us about ourself, it taught us about God, but the role it played when it came to sin and salvation is it increased the trespass. I, I mentioned before, trespass, transgression, those are different. Those, those only come into play when there's an explicit command. So that's the sense in which the law increased sin. It didn't increase the number of sins. It increased the severity of the rebellion. So what the law does is it makes it very clear just how bad our situation is. But then Paul says, he points us to the incomparability of God's grace. In that context, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what he's saying is grace truly is greater than all our sin. Grace entered this scene where the law was in place. And that was the perfect place for this grace to be on display. Because it showed us just how bad our situation was. Sin could not hide in the light of God's revealed explicit commands. God told us not to do something and we specifically transgress it. We step over the line. We demonstrate just how rebellious our hearts are. And so that was the scene in which, that was the backdrop in which Jesus arrived as our representative so that we could see that what he does just so obviously does more than match what Adam did. In this realm of death where sin reigned, grace would come. It would begin to reign in the place of sin through justifying righteousness that leads to eternal life. All of this is through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we know that sin reigns today in our world. How do we know that? Because people die. We know that sin reigns because everybody dies. Death is the consequence for sin, specifically the consequence for Adam's sin. So we're all sinners because of Adam, our representative. And you can see that because we died just as he died. Now, here's the problem we have. This is the norm. This is all we know. All we know is that people die. 
That's all we experience. You know, there are a lot of people that suggest that that's just natural. You watch Star Wars. One of my biggest pet peeves is that the, the Sith, they, they talk about how, or actually the Jedi, the Jedi are the ones that talk about how resurrection's unnatural, that death is natural. They glorify death. Death is not merely natural. It's a consequence for sin. In the garden, that was not the situation. In the garden where Adam had perfect communion with God, he had access to the life that God provides. He had everlasting life in that context. He was separated from everlasting life by his sin. God intended humanity to live with him in an everlasting way. And because of Adam, we have been cut off from that. So Paul's teaching us that this is not just natural. Death is not what God designed for us. So that's why God's gift of grace was given through Christ, so that as sin reigned over humanity in this situation where we die, grace would reign by means of justification that leads to eternal life. God's grace is greater than our sinful state. His grace overpowers our sin and our sinful state. This place where we die, His grace overwhelms it. It makes us righteous. It leads us to resurrection life. How does it do that? It does that through Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Lord of everyone who trusts in Him. This one man, Jesus, stands in for the many. And it's my hope and prayer that you believe that. That everyone here would experience the benefits of what Jesus did. How can you know if you you benefit from Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus was not just some other man in history? Do you believe that Jesus was the most important human to ever live? That he was the divine son who became human, lived in perfect obedience throughout his life, right up to his death. Do you believe that in that one obedient act, by his representation, he restored you to God? Not because of what you've done, but because of what he did. Do you believe that Jesus made you righteous? Do you believe that Jesus made you accepted by God? Do you believe that he's your savior? Your Lord. Do you believe that that's true? I would long for you to all believe that that really is who Jesus is. And for all of us who do believe this amazing grace, do you recognize just how truly amazing it is? It is greater than our sin. Hallelujah. His mercy is more. His grace is more. Do you recognize the victory that Jesus accomplished for us He did what we could not do for ourselves. He is the hero that we should hold out for. He's the only hero to hold out for. He's the only one who is strong and sure and larger than life and able to help us. Paul's going to go on to explain how this impacts our obedience. How it impacts the way we respond to him by wanting to follow him. That's what naturally follows from it. When you hear about this, when you hear about what Jesus has done, when you hear about the overwhelming greatness of what he's done, that he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
then you want to follow him. And you're empowered to follow him. You know, we think we need other things. I know Bonnie Tyler was not talking about needing somebody to rescue her from her sin. She had different needs that she was talking about. We all have different things that we think are most important. Even after we come to faith in Christ, those, those ideas kind of slip back in. What we need to realize is our greatest need is Christ, and he has solved that need. He has taken care of it. He is the hero we need. And our response really should be hallelujah. Jesus, we want to thank you this morning. We recognize that. You have done what we could not do. You, you entered the valley of the shadow of death. For us. And you fought for us. And, and you did that not when we were good or kind or nice. You did it while we were your enemies. You did it for us when we were the very people that were putting you up on the cross. Your love is amazing. Your grace is amazing. Pray that we would grow and learn. And even through these things, there's a number of things in this passage we recognize about you, Jesus, that are hard for us. It can be confusing. But I ask that you'd help us by your spirit to really zero in on your greatness. That we would see just how wide and deep and long is your, your grace and your love for us. That it would change us and keep changing us. And it would arrest our attention so that we were not distracted by these lesser things. That we put everything into the right context the right priority because of your great abounding grace help us to live for you to praise you to praise you in song and to praise you with our lives in light of what you have done